Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we're bringing modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm Jordan Feigenbaum, and we've got a very special guest today, Alan Flanagan. Alan Flanagan is also known as the Nutritional Advocate on Instagram. He's a trained lawyer. He's got his master's in nutrition, and he's finishing his PhD in nutritional uh, sciences. So he's a great guest to have on our podcast today. Got a lot of interesting questions. We'll go ahead and say that we had a little problem recording some audio but I spent a lot of time on it. I think I got it pretty good, but you guys might want to give me a little more leeway on this one. Um, I'm really excited for you guys to listen to the content though. So hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast and I won't waste any more of your time. Let's get into it. Okay. So we are joined here with a very special guest. Alan Flanagan is not only a lawyer, he's also a PhD student, right? You're finishing your PhD in nutrition sciences. He is the nutrition advocate on the Instagrams. Alan, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to finally get around to this. Yeah, the, there's a backstory. I mean, we tried to do this like probably two months ago when he published uh, all these articles on our, our website, uh, which we're so thankful for. And we've got a bunch of traffic and a bunch of good feedback. It's just, you know, when you're actually busy doing things, it's hard to like, <laughs> and also you live, you know, far away. So your time zone, I mean, what time is it there now? It's like 545 or something like that. 545, yeah. Yeah. And well, you're, you're also both in different U.S. time zones, right? Correct. Correct. So yeah. There's three time zones that need coordinating in the yeah. context of people's schedules who are actually like doing shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it is kind of like what we did with Mike and Derek for a long time. There was a lot of like behind the scenes banter and discussion about stuff before we finally ended up coming out with some stuff. And we've been doing the same thing with Alan about, you know, because he's very prolific with his uh Instagram stories and he'll post some interesting uh, research paper and we'll start digging into it. And we were like, Hey, this guy seems to think like we think let's, let's do something together. So yeah. yeah confirm our biases. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so Alan, I just give people kind of a little insight into your background, your history, like how you came to be here just so people get to know you a little bit better. Yeah. So started out like most people, I guess, maybe with our kind of backgrounds, interested in nutrition for sport purposes, which at the time was was rugby growing up. Um, always really had it as, as quite as kind of a little more than a casual interest. I would consider it the way that someone might have a hobby interest in, say, history or something. You know, they might read a lot about it in their spare time. So that was kind of me with it. Um, but uh, I took a different route academically. Um, I did history and English as my undergrad, and then I did law afterwards. And then I started practicing as a lawyer. Um, and all the while had this interest in nutrition aside. But I think part of one of the benefits of being kind of legally trained was I was more inclined to seek out facts. So when I was doing my own self-learning with nutrition, I needed somewhere to resolve the information I was getting. So I became a PubMed warrior. Um, but I had no idea what I was doing. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not a bad place to start. Um, you know, I could have started with, you know, paleo blogs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> Avitating to, uh, you know, to that. But, but that, that really became a kind of light bulb moment for there is a lot of stuff going on here that I don't get and I want to know more. And so that started the formal education process. And once I was in that machinery, it became a kind of self-perpetuating cycle of 
increasing interest um, and just going deeper and deeper down every rabbit hole that I could find, which ultimately made me realize I was spending more time on nutrition science than my job. That was kind of an indication that maybe <laughs> I should make time. Yeah, exactly. So thankfully I'm at, I did my MSc at the university of Surrey, which is an amazing university in the UK for nutrition science and does a lot of great research in that space. And I had a couple of informal conversations with some of the profs there about wanting to stay for a PhD. And this particular project that I'm on now came available um, because a student pulled out. So I got I got some some good breaks. Serendipity worked out a little bit in my favor and I just jumped at the prospect once this became available. And so now I've officially transitioned from law and um, full-time PhD. Nice. So you, I guess you had earned your master's prior to this position becoming it, yeah. So I did it part-time over the course of two and a half years while I stayed working. And, and originally I kind of thought that that would be my, my approach to nutrition. I thought I'd always maybe go on and do a PhD, but I might do that part-time as well and, and, and mm. keep a job um, and have this as kind of the, the hobby academic interest on the side. Well, I really did have an impetus to get involved in research um, and, and get into academia. And so ultimately, it became less of a kind of inclination for a, an academic hobby interest and more of a desire to actually pursue being involved in research, publishing, and, and I guess also using my background to help communicate science. Yeah, don't worry. We'll dissuade you of these academic leanings and try to get you to join the, <laughs> the more practical side. No, no, that's that's a. Uh, uh, I guess the the question I had it is, you know, you you get your master's and you're still practicing law. Was there any? Did you ever have a case like involving any sort of nutrition knowledge that you had? Were you like, you know? No, I I did. Oh, okay. It's it would have been funny. Like I I definitely. Um, used to have these funny thoughts about, you know, how could you combine the two in a legal sense, you know, sure. take some sort of constitutional action to the high court and the Supreme Court, <laughs> challenging <laughs> the food industry's emissions. I mean, you know, on some sort of right to <laughs> basic right to health or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It'll get you some press for sure. Or, you know, one of the NHS like organization. Yeah. You could get in there and, I don't know. That'd be that'd be interesting. All right. So, uh, how much longer do you have on your PhD? It's, uh, years. Okay. So short time. <laughs> <laughs> be a little while. <laughs> yeah. But you get to do research while you're earning your PhD. You get to teach, and you're not practicing law at all right now. Not at all. No. Okay. So, so being involved in research is is great. Um, and I've got great supervisors, and the setup there is fantastic. So I'm kind awesome. of. Yeah, I'm very excited for the next for the next few years. Yeah, I'm excited to see your internet arguments uh, become <laughs> more and more, more and more uh, prolific. Um, okay, cool. I mean, so I think I, I I think I started to see those internet arguments, and like like I think your primary medium of communication has been through Instagram, and start that's where kind of first came across a lot of your you know rants or whatever you want to, however you want to describe them about the current state of, of nutrition research. And you, you, 
you, you're critical in many ways, but there are other things about the world of nutrition research that lends itself to generating lots of misconceptions and confusion in the public. And I think that that's one of the big areas that we want to try to help some of the audience understand is like where that confusion comes from, why it's so prevalent and kind of the, the path forward for nutrition research. So where do you think all that kind of comes from? Why is, why is this nutrition research world so confusing and so much conflicting information for people? Yeah, I think, I think at the most basic level, I think the problem arises in that as a science, as a health science, nutrition is probably unique in that it also doubles up as a belief system, right? So, you know, I don't know anyone that, you know, necessarily say in the field of psychiatry also believes in the biopsychosocial model as some sort of religious calling. Um, we have that odd cognitive bias overlap with nutrition. And so I think that is problematic for the way in which the wider discourse about nutrition um, evolves because people are fundamentally talking about something that they actually believe and is part of their self-construct. And then I think at a deeper level with the actual study and science of it itself, nutrition is quite difficult um, to do. And the early evolution of nutrition as a science very much was focused on actually identifying compounds in foods that seemed to have a role in health. Prior to that, there was some indication that foods had a health benefit, but no one could actually identify the, 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 the constituent responsible for those health effects. So the reductionist model of investigation was, was very useful in that period in the early 20th century, right up until the 1930s and allowed for the identification of most vitamins and minerals. Um, and that was really appropriate for the time because public health at the time was faced with a lot of diseases associated with single nutrient deficiencies. So pellagra and vitamin B3, or in the Far East, beriberi and, and vitamin B1, and identifying these nutrients as causative in terms of deficiency and disease allowed for programs to be put in place to eradicate that deficiency and improve population health. So that was hugely successful. But, but from the 1970s onwards, we've had a shift to chronic lifestyle diseases that aren't associated with any single isolated nutrient deficiency. But we've still forced that reductionist model onto the fields. And in that time frame as well, we've had kind of leaps and bounds in evolution of the biomedical model, which is very much a tool as an investigative model that evolved to test drugs or to test interventions. And it's not particularly well suited to the study of nutrition. Um, it misses the forest for the trees by still wanting to dig down to an isolated constituent of food and ignoring the effect of the whole food itself and the wider diet pattern. Um, it often means that the strictures of the model uh, in terms of design setup mean that we end up with some fairly farcical conclusions. So an example I always use for this is vitamin E. So we, we have some strong epidemiology that goes back to the 1970s that high dietary intake of vitamin E is associated with lower incidence of cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative disease. So from about the mid-90s onwards, people thought, right, well, let's take this nutrient and let's put it into supplement trials and let's look at these outcomes. 
and pretty much every single one of them fails. So the conclusion that is then made in that model of inquiry is vitamin E does not have a role <laughs> in reducing you know, heart disease, for example, or dementia. And that's actually not the hypothesis that has been tested because what's happened is the hypothesis that has been tested is this isolated nutrient independent from the food sources that provide it in the wider context of diet is not yeah. associated with improved health outcomes. And we've had this rigid fixation on, on nutrition and its limitations recently um, and as if other modes of inquiry haven't actually evolved and they have. And the, the best example of this is the biopsychosocial model. And that evolved in the 1970s because people in that field felt that the strictures of the purely biomedical model weren't doing enough to properly investigate and have applicability of findings in terms of psychiatric conditions. So you'll see a lot more. There's this assumption, I think, that the very biomedical RCT, the double blinding, the placebo, the treatment group, very distinct from um, the, you know, as an intervention and very definable is the only model of inquiry, but there are multiple styles of randomized controlled trial on a spectrum, really explanatory, which is what we're talking about here, to more pragmatic, which is probably less strictures of control, but more applicability. And that's what the biopsychosocial model evolved to. And nutrition science probably needs to do a similar step in evolution. So I, I think that a lot of the difficulties that stem in terms of the conversations come from people's, I guess, inability to fully grasp why nutrition science is somewhat different. Yeah. And it allows them then to run away with results that probably aren't representative or accurate. For example, there's this idea that in the hierarchy of evidence, a meta-analysis is, is the best and strongest form of evidence. And it is. But meta-analyses in nutrition science can be a tool to literally throw mud against the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you actually almost have to distill every single individual study to come up with an appropriate representation of what that meta-analysis would say. So I think a lot of the confusion comes from people not necessarily understanding what they're looking for by looking at these research designs as it relates to nutrition. I think that the mode of inquiry is probably not specifically suited to nutrition. And I think that a lot of the confusion is created by people getting their interpretation of what is being said in a given paper, whether it's a meta-analysis or an RCT or even epidemiology, just, just wrong. So, yeah, um, it makes for some, for some convoluted and confused conversations. Yeah, I, I guess the concern, you know, somebody listening to this who's like, all right, this guy's smart, you know law degree, PhD, you know, student in, in nutrition and, and really has a, a research, you know, bias. I, what I'm hearing him say, some would, you know, maybe interpret from this is that, well, nutrition science is just BS. Those will just ignore it because they're not asking the proper questions in the proper context. And therefore the conclusions that are being made are improper as well. So let's just ignore it. And, and, and I, I am certain that you're not saying that, but I, I just wanted you to clarify for the listeners, you know, what your take is actually on like, what is the utility of the current evidence base that we have for, you know, if you had to like summarize that for like general applications of the, of the evidence right now? 
and, and you're right because that, that that is that criticism is used as a tool by people to dismiss the entire field. Um, they're usually people for whom the evidence doesn't accord with their preconceived beliefs about diet and health. And oh, sure. people. we're familiar with those types of people. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes. That would be the kind of the low carb, kind of ketogenic, like, you know, just eat all the animal fat you want um, crowd oh. who just dismiss the entire field because it doesn't tell them what they want to hear. Um, interestingly, despite these limitations, we actually know more than enough information of the most basic parameters of what constitutes a healthy diet, despite these limitations. And that's because the entire model itself isn't flawed. It's just an awkward fit, but there's still some parts where it fits. Um, one thing that people often dismiss is nutritional epidemiology, but actually, and I made this point in the article that I did with you guys, the track record for nutritional epidemiology is actually quite sound and accords often with what we find in controlled trials or mechanistic work. So can, can you just, can you just, before you get that, just define for people what nutritional epidemiology, when you de describe, when you use that term, kind of what type of study are you referring to? Cause some people may not oh, yeah. be able to fully digest the articles. Oh yeah. We know, <laughs> we know what you mean, <laughs> but for the, uh, for Austin, for Austin. <laughs> So not usually we're talking about prospective cohort studies in populations where they're recruited at baseline and, and then followed up over a long period. Um, and it's a good design because more so than any other form of observational research, you can minimize kind of biases and input because you don't introduce any variables afterwards. You take your baseline data, you might take data at subsequent points, maybe every four years, maybe every eight years or whatever. And then you look at that then 20, 30 years later, and it's, it's, it can be very informative when it's done well. And for example, we historically in public health guidelines had an emphasis on total dietary fat intake. It was through observations in epidemiology that we questioned that. And then by looking at that in more detail in population research and then looking at controlled trial interventions, we got to the conclusion that actually the total fat content of your diet doesn't really matter, but the composition of fats in your diet does. And then on that point, we had a lot of population research showing that, well, when people reduce saturated fat content and replace it with, with unsaturated fat content from oily fish, nuts, seeds, these kind of foods, their cardiovascular burden is reduced. And then we had controlled trials showing that exact same effect. And we had very tightly controlled feeding studies showing a mechanism for why that would be the case in terms of impacts on blood lipids, endothelial function, insulin resistance, and other parameters. So actually the track record of nutritional epidemiology is quite, is quite sound. For example, a very good example of this is the ban on trans fats. So trans fats were often lumped in the food supply have particularly deleterious consequences for health across the board. That's not even in dispute. And we've, we've no RCTs that randomize people to trans fat consumption. We saw yeah. observations in populations and then mechanistic work, lab work that showed why they might have these effects. And it was a combination of the two that led to their removal from the food supply. So people are often quick to criticize it. But what I'd often say is the question for any field of inquiry for science is, is it fit for purpose? 
does it does it result in what we need it to result in for that field and for nutrition what we need it to result in is improvements in human health and we've been we've been able to implement a lot of those results for the benefit of the population and i think one of the best examples of that is cardiovascular mortality which is more than halved since the 1960s in in developed countries and particularly the countries with the highest SAFAD intake. And if you look, and I think a great case study for that is the difference between the UK and the US and Finland, because often when we track those trends, we'll often see reductions in smoking and other lifestyle factors. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you look at Finland, over the same 30-year period, they cut their cardiovascular mortality by about 80% with no change in smoking rates and no population change in average BMI levels. And it was entirely to do with food-based interventions targeting a reduction in saturated fat from what was at the time 23% of daily energy down to 12. So we have evidence for action. The reason why there's a disconnect between what we know in nutrition and implementing it is more to do with socioeconomic, political, and environmental determinants of health. And it's very little to do with the accumulated body of knowledge that we have to date. Yeah, that's, that's actually a really good point. You know, cause what, when I had read your articles before I posted them and, and then kind of just thinking about this a little bit more freeform, you know, my initial thought is like, if I get to, had to control or got to control like nutritional research, like where it was going, how it was done, whatever. We would always start with like a metabolic word study to like, we're going to find out, does this work, you know, or does this have any effect? And then we would go from there and fan out into like, you know, more free living studies and in, in these epidemiological studies. But you're actually suggesting almost the reverse, like do the epidemiology, the, those studies first in the free living population and then try to find the mechanism if there's a difference. Cause why would you do this hyper specific study to start with if there's no difference in free living population, which when I came to that conclusion, I was like, Oh crap. (laughs) (laughs) You idiot. Like, why didn't you have this thought on your own? (laughs) There's, 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 there's a couple of great, there's a couple of researchers in the field that have been really publishing and calling for this, probably since 2008, uh, Linda Tapsell is one, um, and David Jacobs is another. And what they called it was a, a top-down approach versus a bottoms-up approach. So the biomedical model is a bottoms-up approach. It's the reductionist focus that is like, let us go down to this specific compound and look at this and, and build up from there. Whereas in a top-down approach for nutrition, it's like you look at the level of diet patterns in populations what seems to be going on and then you funnel down and you work through food-based interventions look at the mechanistic work do lab stories studies the reason why metabolic ward studies ultimately aren't feasible in for for a lot of questions is because their design is so tight and everything is so tightly controlled you can really only do them for very short acute periods of time so we've just we've just wrapped up on Saturday, we wrapped up the first session of a controlled uh, chrononutrition study we're doing, basically looking at circadian rhythms, the effects of jet lag. That was eight days, though. You can't lock people away in a lab for much longer than that and have a catheter hanging out their arm. That's <laughs> <You're> wrong. <laughs> so, point being that 
diet health, diet disease interactions are not acute, they're chronic. These diseases have long latency periods. They'll develop over 20 or 30 years of an exposure. So prospective cohort studies are an amazing tool when they're done well to be able for us to look at this exposure as it happens on the ground in the population. And then we can dig in and, and find some mechanistic work. Um, well, and it doesn't have to be exclusively separated in that way. And a, and a good example of this that, that I, I, when I give talks, I, I put this slide up and I use two graphs. One is from a paper published in 1997 that was an analysis of metabolic ward studies going back to the 1950s, looking at the effects of controlled feeding of different fats and carbohydrates on blood lipids. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they modeled the effect of substituting 5% from one with the other. So 5% of energy from saturated fat with carbohydrate, from saturated fat with polyunsaturates, or, and so forth. And they modeled that relative to reductions in blood cholesterol levels. And you see this hierarchy that emerged in those feeding studies going back to the 50s, where the, the greatest effect, the most significant reduction, a positive benefit, was replacing with polyunsaturated fat, followed by monounsaturated fats, followed by complex carbohydrate. Then you extrapolate that then and look at that through the lens of the epidemiology that models 5% substitution, and you will see that exact same hierarchy emerge. The most significant effect will be reducing, substituting PUFA, and then MUFA, and then complex carbohydrate. And there'll be no real change with refined carbohydrate or sugar. So we have this mechanistic work that dates back to the 1950s, that ultimately emerges in epidemiology when the models are done correctly. So there is a consistency between epidemiology and, and the controlled work that is sometimes, I think, lost in the shouting. Um, and so definitely, it's not, it's not that the biomedical model cannot generate positive results. It's that there's just parts of it that are awkward and 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 we need to do we need we do need to think a bit more about so you're 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 building a you're building a case for these things in multiple different coming at it from multiple different angles using multiple different methods and when you get consistency between them you're building a stronger and stronger case but with the problem that you laid out at the beginning where you know nutrition gets to be a religion for some people uh, that caught that becomes problematic when it conflicts with that or then certain types of evidence you like there's you said there's no really there's there's no like pro trans fat group out there that are still denying that evidence but when it comes to you know carbs or fats or animal foods or something like that you know there's always going to be people for whom the evidence is never going to be enough or they may always demand a large scale you know 50 year rct in a metabolic ward that they know is never going to happen or something like that (laughs) yeah 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 and, and that's how you know those groups are fundamentally being anti-science, because if they're going to demand, if they're going to A, dismiss any body of accumulated evidence, including, you know, controlled trials and, 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 and what are considered the higher quality evidence, because it doesn't accord with their perspective, and then demand a level of evidence that will simply never be forthcoming in, in any realm, then you know that you're dealing fundamentally with, with quite anti-science thinking um you know it's 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 like trump's tweet when when chicago froze over and the midwest froze over and he was just like you know ha who's talking about global warming now there was a comment underneath from someone in australia saying it's 45 
degrees down here. You <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, 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 yeah. The anti-science thing is, is super interesting in these scientific fields because again, yes, it, it's in health and medicine and fitness and, and, and all these related fields. There are people who are saying the research is bad. And then not only the existing research that we have is bad, but we're also not even publishing all these like negative outcomes. So we don't even know what's going on. And then on top of that, they have this cognitive bias that they may or may not be aware of how much that's influencing their own like interpretation of, you know, actual evidence. And, you know, it's interesting because you do have this law background. So you're like aware of the, you know, the Rawlsian like veil of ignorance. If you want justice, like in a, particular like argument or like trying to come up with like a condition that's fair for everyone then you need to like remove your own like social standing and anything you know your own position to come up with these rules but they can't remove themselves from this you know where they're at and they're like so for instance if a person's heavily vested in paleo sort of ideology or whatever then everything that they read and you know say or whatever is cloaked filtered in this paleo sort of bias and it's like well of course you're going to deny data suggesting that <laughs> saturated fat replacement with polyunsaturated fats improves outcomes because that doesn't fit any mental model you currently have access to so yeah well so i look forward to future rants just just, just due to this <laughs> uh it, it does it does kind of it's one of the things that, that bothers me about nutrition because you know part of the reason we have science obviously is because as human beings we, we are prone to these and i you know talk about bias and, and and cognitive fallacies and none of us are immune from them and that's totally okay it's part of the human condition which is why we put tools in place to be able to investigate things while minimizing those factors and i just think perhaps one of the benefits of my background is that if you put the blinkers on in a case and you've got a case in and you read it and you read it only from your own side and you've got some fella who got rear-ended, uh, you know, or in a traffic light or, or something like that and you're just looking at it going, God, this poor guy that slammed into and you, you don't then question whether, you know, he braked last minute or whether he was drunk or, you know. So I think... I, I'm just lucky that I had a background that actually made me always put the foot on the other shoe and be like, right, where where are my holes? <laughs> where is yeah. this going to go tits up if I don't think about other angles? And what you know, and and so it's it's just been kind of helpful. But it 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 is something that I do find particularly frustrating with a lot of the conversations that we're having in nutrition is, like you said, there's they're cloaked in a lens and they won't step outside of it. And that discourse goes right all the way up to the to the highest level. So it's an interesting subject to try and navigate. It's definitely a love hate thing because <laughs> you love the subject, but you hate a lot of the conversations that are going on in it. Um, so I, I and I also don't know necessarily how we combat it because this fits into this wider post truth anti intellectual culture that we have now. And I'm just not sure how we navigate this. I'm not sure that communicating facts is enough anymore. Yeah. Well, a lot of that comes from, I mean, like this postmodern thinking like that you and prosumer sort of culture, like that you can know 
the same things that the expert knows because you have access now to tools and resources, which if anything has been instilled upon me throughout professional level training is that you certainly cannot. And, and like, e even if you have all this access without the professional guidance through the field and like, you know, supervision and like structured course, it, you, you can't. And, and people don't like hearing that, that like, Hey, just if you try really hard and you put the time <laughs> in, you're going to make it. And it's like, no. And that, that goes, that goes for people who, you know, are e even in the formal process themselves. So, uh, and it's Dunning Kruger, right? It, it really is. Sure. I'm just using the Dunning Kruger graph more and more now because it is that idea of the scale of confidence and expertise. Um, but we just have so many people that are really high on confidence and, and low on expertise because they have access to a few freely published PubMed articles. Um, and they're capable of just taking the abstract and saying, oh, this study found X, sure. this study found Y. And they assume that because they have that access, whatever opinion they've just formed is on the level with someone that's been in that field for 20 years and knows the literature inside out. And that's problematic. Sure. Uh, yeah, speaking of kind of how this per relates to like public health, which I know is your that's probably one of your bigger aims, uh, probably the biggest challenge facing the world from a public health perspective and nutrition is obesity. So, you know, 39% of the world is overweight. I think it's like 15% or something's obese, a uh, huge disease burden related to excess adiposity or carrying too much body fat. Uh, do you have strong like reservations or like, uh, are you very uncomfortable with the current dietary guidelines pertaining to this, because you would think that with the scope of this problem that each country or each organization is coming out with different guidelines, like, do you hate them all? Far too much of a focus on, on dietary guidelines as if they have some sort of role to play here. Um, nobody follows dietary guidelines. Uh, <laughs> Not you're not doing the well. Program. We hear we we hear we hear people say that like oh obesity's increased since these dietary guidelines said this, and I know you've talked about this before, which is why I included the topic. I'm like, are the guidelines the problem? <laughs> it's it's such it's 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 again that is that is heard from particular groups, usually the low carbohydrate paradigm, and they've got there's just so many holes in the narrative from the get go. One is that. The U.S. guidelines came in in 77 and the U.K. guidelines came in in 83. They were the, the, the first two real government healthcare guidelines. So you have this narrative surrounding them that when they were introduced, they told everybody to eat a low-fat diet and eat more carbohydrates. So everyone piled on the sugar. But all you have to do is actually read the guidelines to see that they recommended for example, replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat, that they remember that they recommended increasing dietary fiber intake, reducing salt, eating more vegetables and fruit, and basically everything we fucking know about what's good about diet and health. So the print this is the point. The fundamental principles of what we know about diet and health haven't really changed that much. The big picture stuff and all guidelines encompass is the big picture stuff. And the reason that there's just such a non-issue in this conversation is because the primary drivers of all of this increasing chronic lifestyle disease burden 
are socioeconomic and environmental. And they've had nothing to do with guidelines because the guidelines don't dictate that the greatest concentration of fast food outlets are in the areas of lowest social or highest social deprivation. They don't dictate that people have less time, no food preparation skills, single parent working households, increasing numbers of people in the workforce. They don't dictate that the price and cost of a hypercaloric diet is the lowest overall that it could ever have been, when historically the issues facing lower socioeconomic sections of society was malnutrition or undernutrition, now it's overnutrition. So in many respects, this is a triumph, and I put triumph in quotation marks because I'm saying it pejoratively, of the neoliberal economic model that we've managed to create food availability and energy availability in the food supply for the absolute cheapest cost and that the people that are exposed to this exposure to this environmental exposure which is what it is typically in any western developed industrialized country are the lowest socioeconomic strata of that society and what's interesting is that health dis wealth disparity within a society is the greatest driver of the health disparity in that society. So the countries with the leading statistics for chronic lifestyle disease, the US, the UK, and Australia, are also the countries with the biggest wealth divides between haves and have-nots. Um, and that's really not coincidental at this point. So the dietary guidelines have been like, you know, it's someone, you know, spitting at a tank in terms of the, the impact that it might have on this advancing machinery. And um, fundamentally, I just think they've been a, a, an easy point in time to commit to the famous post hoc fallacy and look at this time point and say, well, you know, X came before Y, therefore X caused right. Y. Um, and it's, it just couldn't be any further from the truth. Because if everyone followed the dietary guidelines, we wouldn't have these problems. <laughs> Can you imagine if everybody actually followed them? <laughs> eight, seven servings of fruits and vegetables and eight <laughs> grams of dietary fiber a day and consumed around 9% saturated fat and the rest all unsaturated. <laughs> like what? <laughs> We'd be grand. <laughs> yes. So, so it's, it's, it's that issue. And, and what I really like is, it, particularly in the UK, dietary guidelines have, have come in by the, by the kind of very militaristic kind of low carb crowd that exist here. Um, but in 2015, there was an RCT, a food-based RCT, which tested the British dietary guidelines versus a controlled British diet. So in the, in the, in the intervention group, they swapped butter for polyunsaturated spreads. They consumed more nuts. They increased their fiber intake. They, they didn't consume any refined grains. They just con consumed whole grain bread and oats instead of morning cereals, you know, and the reduction in risk factors would be predicted to reduce the cardiovascular mortality burden by 15% in the general population in the intervention group, i.e. the actual dietary guideline diet. So, you know, this idea that the guidelines are responsible for increasing adiposity at a population level is, is just a, a fanciful preposition. Um, but what I find more nefarious about it is that it distracts us 
from the hard conversations that we need to have about the social and economic and environmental determinants of these of these diseases. Yeah. So you so you would say the the guidelines are not the problems themselves. In fact, they're based on, at as far as we know at this time, sound evidence that's been amassed. But the resources dedicated towards coming up with those guidelines, uh, putting those guidelines out, and marketing and everything else are resources that would probably be better dedicated towards the social, uh, socioeconomic determinants of you know. Uh, of of health and in this particular context, nutrition, you know, pre- uh, uh, preparation for uh, food in and of itself, access, all those other sort of things. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. We we would be better off putting those guidelines into action in the context of mandatory regulation of the food industry, reformulation, and all of these various upstream interventions that aren't targeting the level of the individual. Because right now, our approach at a public health level still is very much oriented around the personal responsibility narrative. Uh, Here, we've given you the guidelines, you just need to suck it up and do it. Um, And that's obviously problematic because the idea if we're acknowledging that these issues are primarily driven by, you know, social economics and the environment, but we're not modifying the environment and still expecting people to take action, then that's a bit of a sick joke we're playing on ourselves right now. And I, I think if we accept that these chronic lifestyle diseases are the issues that they are, the most obvious analogy is the smoking issue and the tobacco industry through the 60s. And the food industry very much takes a lot of its playbook from big tobacco then in terms of countering emerging research with some, you know, a nice meta-analysis, for example, to really muddy the waters and, and create confusion and, and, and prevent the hard conversations we need, that need to be had. And then the other part of the problem is because it's relatively unregulated, they still have a seat at the table at every step of the way. So I have a friend of mine here who works in public health nutrition campaigns and was telling me that, you know, they're, they're trying to get a campaign brought in to stop deliberate targeting of children with high sugar, fat and salt foods. But industry is there at the table while they're trying to formulate this policy, you know, and they, they shouldn't have, they, they should be involved once the policy is formulated in terms of having a say in how it's rolled out, but they absolutely should not have a role in influencing what the ultimate policy is going to be. Right. So, so if you had to give our listeners, you know, your greatest hits list of socioeconomic determinants that you would like to see, I guess, focused on, or at least addressed, what would that look like? Yeah. Well, this is, you know, we're, we're, ma- we're making an album for you. Yeah. The, the two that, that consistently come out to me when I, when I look at that area is time as a barrier and lack of food preparation skills. So how do we address those factors? Um, I think schools are probably one avenue where we could make significant improvements in childhood nutrition because depending on the area, kids might often eat two meals a day at school. Um, Particularly if they're from a disadvantaged background, the likelihood or the potential certainly is that the the meal consumed at home may not be particularly nutritionally adequate um, or enough, or its composition may not be particularly health promoting. So there's an opportunity within the school system to not only provide for better nutrition for children, 
which we know ties over the lifetime, but to perhaps also start to implement um, policies or, 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 or programs to actually impart preparation skills. Um, so I think that's one avenue. The time barrier, I think, ultimately comes down to lack of security. Um, this is where, you know, this is where these conversations are really difficult to have, particularly in a country like America, which has a very um, particular perspective on things like taxation. So, I mean, for me, the more I look at the kind of Scandinavian model, I'm kind of thinking, right, well, if there's a if there's somewhat of a better distribution of wealth, there's somewhat of a better distribution of health equity. Um, the time barrier, I think, you know, is something that would be a very, very hard conversation to navigate because what we're talking about is giving people is, is increasing the, the standard of living, um, yeah. improving minimum wage, giving people more health security in terms of insurance um, and stuff like that. The more you scrutinize it, the more you see that a lot of the healthcare systems that have universal healthcare are struggling less with these issues than the rest of us. So that's another very hard, very political conversation that maybe needs to be had. Um, and ultimately, I think that we need to look at uh, laws for zoning and, and planning around, you know, what are now known as food, food deserts. Yeah, and I think I think if you look at some of the qualitative research in this area, you know, one thing that I'm not a huge fan of is the whole education tagline because I think it's a little bit classist. I mean, people might be poor or social, or, you know, have have less social advantage than others, but they're not stupid. And I think pretty much you line up ten people against a wall and ask them what is good to eat, and I bet you eight, irrespective of background, would say fruits and vegetables, right? So it's not necessarily a knowledge background. It's not necessarily a knowledge barrier. It's, it's the reasons why that knowledge can't be implemented that we need to start troubleshooting and navigating. These are really hard conversations. Um, I do think that we need to look upstream. and I do think mandatory regulation uh, is probably the only way forward for modifying the environment downstream. I'd be a big fan of introducing a cap and trade approach to emissions and learning from what we've done in with carbon emissions in the environmental realm, I think we can apply that to food. So it's it's implemented now to a degree with sugar, um, but I think we could do it with 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 the fast or total calorie content of a lot of common foods that are consumed, um, and put in place a cap and trade approach to ultimately reduce that over the course of say ten or twenty years. So. Yeah, these are a lot of controversial and politically charged topics. Like you said, we don't, we don't, Jordan, Jordan and I don't tend to let our politics out in, in this medium very much, but this is a situation where it's so tightly intertwined with the stuff. And, you know, to anybody who's listening in America, they'll readily identify many, you know, liberal type leaning perspectives that you're describing there as ways to reduce that kind of those, those massive disparities you know, from a socioeconomic status that end up kind of having downstream consequences from a health perspective, but health consequences of this stuff are never part of the discussion on the political side of things. They're, you know, they're not sure. like concerned with that at all. They're just concerned with like money at the end of the day and how much, you know, am I getting taxed or how much am I taking home at the end of the day? And that's like pretty much it. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you were trying to implement a change in your community or in like a, uh, at a national level, you'd want to make 
everyone everyone better to the extent that you can improve like their health and you wouldn't want to make anyone worse right like that would be like the big aim and so if if we as a society are in agreement that like health that and then the health of our individuals is of higher priority than wealth then some yeah very difficult conversations then have to be had because you're not going to make everyone healthy to the same level or healthier to the same level but you, we have a potential to to those who are ready to make ch- changes or ex- it's, it's accessible to them you will make them healthier and, and engaging in more health promoting behaviors and you're not going to make anybody worse from a health perspective you might make some shareholders in some very powerful organizations you know hurt a little money money you know finance wise but not health wise and so it really i i'm in agreement with kind of all that's been said here it's just it comes down to very difficult conversations about what is more important and 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 the, and with people who are very powerful and sure know, yes and the, <laughs> that's the hard part there, there is a way to economically frame this argument when we look at the sheer economic cost of sure. the burden of chronic lifestyle disease so while there may be some short-term, you know, issues to iron out, you know, there's no reason why if we frame this as a population-wide issue and we say we're all kind of in this together, so to speak, and there, there may be sacrifices for, say, people that are like mega wealthy, like maybe there's an increase in tax, for example. If, if, there are, if, if we start to reduce the economic burden on healthcare, that can itself be redistributed in ways that are equitable to to the people who have contributed. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, that there is, you know, it's it's not a myopic loss for anybody that's in a position to 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 to, to for example, you know, um, pay more. And and it doesn't necessarily have to happen through tax alone. Regulation and legislation can have a huge part to play in this without denting people's pockets. Sure. But it is definitely, it is definitely, I think, inevitably going to have a component that is like, we need to help people in society that have lost more ground than anybody in yeah, the last yeah. 40 or 50 years. The people who are most vulnerable, the people who are yet yeah, the worst. Yeah. This was one perspective to, to, to counter, potentially frame a counter argument against this would be to say, look, this is just a Darwinian and this is the new environment one has to navigate and not everyone that's socially disadvantaged will succumb to these issues and and, and, and that's a very distorted darwinian perspective to take on this but what i would say you know kind of as a as a counter to that and why that argument falls is because we're not on the same playing field from the get-go so yeah. that that argument of, look, it's just a new form of survival of the fittest only applies if we're all exposed to the same environment and if the exposures are constant in all of us. But they're not because yeah, it's you can disproportionate. Have, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's disproportionate yeah. and people are disadvantaged in health opportunity. And that's why they need help from upstream. Yeah. If I heard anybody make that argument, oh my god, that, that makes me profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a really twisted way when I was thinking about like <laughs> all of the arguments that could be framed against sure. my own thinking. We've painted we've painted this sort of huge potential for making you know uh, uh, legislation level, uh, community level, 
uh, population level changes in the nutrition that's accessible and promoted and ultimately given to the individuals under the guise that if we do this, health outcomes will be way better. It's almost akin to this idea like food is medicine. And, 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 and you know, I, the most interesting thing about this particular notion is that there was a club at our medical school that started, uh, I think it was my first year, and I actually gave a talk there um, about, quote, unquote, food is medicine. And it was interesting, and this is a to- totally unrelated, but they brought in a, an RD who basically gave a presentation about, like, these are portion sizes, and, you know, people should follow the portion size. Like he had like a fake apple and like, you know, it was very strange. And then my presentation on the other end was like, you know, we're really bad at estimating how many calories are in a meal. People don't have enough education to do this. Most long-term diets actually fail. And this is like, there are, you know, social determinants involved in this. I mean, I wasn't as refined at that point to like be able to communicate as effectively as I would be now, but effectively this guy's like portion C here, which is not wrong. But then I'm like, yeah, all that stuff is not necessarily the limitation that we have. So what is your take on like this food is medicine movement? (laughs) If you, if you have, if you have a take. No, yeah, I, I, I have multiple issues, but first of all, food, food is a, a requirement from day one of life. It's just what one actually consumes would be different, whether it's milk to solids to whatever diet accords with the region and perhaps cultural and religious influences in one's life at that point in time. And so fundamentally, if we assume that people start out, unless they've got some serious congenital condition, most people will start out healthy and food is for everybody at that point. And so there will be benefits to consuming food uh, at every point in this life stage. But fundamentally, if in the context of other environmental exposures, like someone doesn't smoke and they exercise regularly and they get good sunshine and good sleep, you know, the likelihood of them getting the kind of condition that we're faced with now, fatty liver disease, diabetes, and any of these, you know, cardiovascular disease is going to be relatively small, i.e. they will never need medicine. And while food is certainly powerful, the problem with food as medicine right now is that it ties in with this kind of naturalistic fallacy obsession that everyone has. You know, the conditions that we face in society are, are so egregious to, to, to people that the only solution clearly is to kick off our shoes and go walking barefoot as our forebears did and, you know, go back to this very return to nature concept. And the danger with that is that people overestimate the benefits of food and end up with somewhat of a disdainful view of conventional medicine because Mm -hmm. it hasn't necessarily stopped the increase in chronic lifestyle disease. And a good friend of mine here who is a medical knows her shit with nutrition as well and talk she gives which is the mortality burden of disease globally in 2007 and hiv is number five and now merely kind of you know just about 10 years later it's not even in the top 10 and diabetes is number five one is oh my god conventional medicine is failing everyone the second and the correct one is, oh my God, conventional medicine is fucking awesome because it's doing what it set out to do, which is eradicate communicable, not you know, communicable disease. 
so none of us are ever going to get polio or tuberculosis. Vaccine has been. Um, <laughs> you might get now. Someone might contract HIV, but antiretrovirals will keep them alive and they will live a fairly normal lifespan and they won't succumb to AIDS. Sure. And if you get leukemia and then a bone marrow transplant, you might just be relieved of your HIV burden entirely. You know, it's happened twice. So it's high, high probability. Right. right. And it's just these issues that we, we have yet to really troubleshoot. The problem with food as medicine is that people overestimate the effect of the nutrients or food and, and then dismiss available treatments that are going to have a big impact on their prognosis. And at the end of the day, as an example of this, statins will reduce your LDL levels to a greater degree than diet ever will. Um, and, you know, this idea that food is medicine implies that in a reactionary sense, nutrition can avert disease progression. But actually, all of the cumulative body of evidence about nutrition would show that it's largely preventative in nature. And so this idea that, yeah, okay, so a very high dietary fiber intake might protect from colorectal cancer. It doesn't mean when you get diagnosed with colorectal cancer, you start drinking fiber supplements. You know, right. you know food isn't medicine. It is The problem with me saying this, though, is that people end up kind of reaching out being like, oh, my God, you know, you you, you, you're dismissing food. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm acknowledging where our understanding is, where food is beneficial, but also where that benefit ends. And so fundamentally, you know, we, we, and we also need to understand that the, the interventions that we have that will benefit a lot of these lifestyle conditions are so extreme that they can't be considered a nutrition intervention. So the example here would be the emerging research on very low calorie liquid diets for diabetes remission. So what we know about diabetes is that it doesn't really matter what diet you do, low carb will work only for the period of carbohydrate restriction. So all low carb does in diabetes is manage glycemic control. It will never rejuvenate beta cell function. And that's the hallmark of progression. And people will increase glycemic agents and they might be on two or three glycemic agents. They'll still progress. So yeah. The only intervention we really have to date that will restore beta cell function are these liquid six to 800 calorie a day diets for eight weeks. And it's less to do with the weight loss, actually, um, or, or what the research suggests, and more to do with the severe caloric restriction. Drinking 600 calories a day of liquid is not a nutrition intervention. That's a medical intervention. Mm -hmm. So that is not food being medicine there. That is starving someone for eight weeks to get their beta cells rejuvenated basically it kind of reminds me of the biomedical perspective on things like the food is medicine concept it, in some sense it fits with a traditional biomedical view like oh yeah if you have scurvy then sure eating an orange is medicine for that in a treatment sense but when you move beyond the you know the 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 the, the older kind of def deficiency states that we dealt with in nutrition now to more modern complex disease uh there's not like therapeutic nutrition has a very limited role to play in a lot of these things yeah well well, I'm getting big checks. I'm getting checks from big nutrition. And so I still think <laughs> food is medicine. I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. The idea, that idea is kind of, it's fallen out of favor with me. I mean, I still, I do think that as far as like preventative lifestyle changes, sure, make, you know, nutritional, there are certain nutritional strategies that can set somebody up for success. 
you know, uh, but in the role of disease management, you know, yeah, you can make medical interventions that are applied nutritionally, but you should not necessarily always do those in place of actual, you know, medical care. And uh, this message brought to you by Big Pharma. Uh, I, I'll be cashing that check as well. So yeah, it's it's a it's a it can be frustrating. I, I assume because then people say, well. If you're not behind this food as medicine movement, you're, you're, you know, you're not a part of the movement. You're just a, you know, a shill. There, you're a shill. And, and, and what the other thing that I find interesting about the food as medicine thing is any of my colleagues, anyone I know that's purely in the nutrition space, academically or as a practitioner, can't stand the tagline. The, the press <laughs> that I'm getting all the time now is from medical doctors. Particularly in the UK, we have this real embracing of food as medicine within conventional medicine. What I find really problematic is when you start to pick at what they're saying as food as medicine, it's the kind of woo nutrition stuff that people in nutrition have been battling for quite some time. Sure. And that's not okay. <laughs> for, and I made a point in a, in a story the other day that, you know, that some of these kind of food as medicine doctors are inspiring a generation of medics to forget their stethoscope and march into clinic with turmeric in one hand and a garlic bulb in the other. <laughs> yeah. And, that's kind of what <laughs> and, and they all want to believe this. And I, I think that's problematic. You know, yeah. I think that's problematic. There's a, there's by orders of magnitude, there is a difference between, a GP, for example, in his clinic saying, I think you should eat more vegetables and fruit um, and maybe eat some oily fish a couple of times a week. That's solid. That's fine. Versus, you know, garlic will fucking boost your gut bacteria, immune system, whatever. Turmeric prevents colorectal cancer. It's like, stop. <laughs> you know? we, don't, we don't need people with that level of public authority bias creating the same kind of perspectives about food that, you know, cancer ranch guy in Florida does or the medical yeah. medium does. So yeah. yeah, we've already got enough of that on social media. We don't need it in our, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alan, dude, it's been, this has been great. I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> can you tell our, tell our listeners what you're working on now and then where, where to find, uh, all your stuff at? Yeah. So right now we, we've just finished the first phase or first session of four that we're doing, um, looking at the influence of circadian rhythms on your metabolic responses. So we, we want to see whether if, if you have a preferential response to food intake earlier in the day, is that because of behavioral patterns, you're just awake, you're, you move more, you're more active, you train later or whatever, you train in the morning. Or is it actually because your inbuilt circadian rhythms um, are primed to uh, improve your um, digestion, absorption, utilization of the foods and nutrients that you eat? So we're doing some mechanistic work on that in the lab where we do a five-hour jet lag protocol um, and look at people's postprandial or, or post-eating uh, resting metabolic rate changes, um, blood lipids, glucose tolerance, and all this kind of stuff. So that's, that's the project at the minute. Where you can find me is on Instagram 
at the nutritional underscore advocate. Um, and I will have a website that I've been working on quietly in the background coming out at the end of next week, hopefully, is the schedule awesome. for it. So, yeah, it's kind of just my Instagram on steroids. Oh, it'll be published someplace to stay instead of self-destructing knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you're like Inspector Gadget. That's what you should change your Instagram to. It's like... All right. Thanks for listening. Make sure you come back next week. We've got a podcast with Dr. Carl Nadolski. Carl Nadolski is a board certified endocrinologist. He's going to take us through all the nuances of hormones and it's a really good podcast. So I'm excited to drop that one next week. If you guys haven't yet, leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes really helps us out, helps us get our message out. And we really appreciate it as always. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. See you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.